Hello and welcome to episode 54 of the Structure and Interpretation of Computer Programmers podcast, helping programmers to become software engineers. The topic of this episode is the idea of professionalism and the fact that it's a sort of two-way street. It involves give and take. And the motivation is a pair of articles that I'll put in the show notes, one of which refers to the other. So I'll put the more recent one in first, and then it cites uh, the second one. And the first one is Mike Klimek uh, on modern software development. And his thesis is that uh, he bemoans the state of software creation in traditional companies. Uh, where we put the scare quotes around the phrase traditional companies, um, because he's actually describing uh, large German automotive companies and then like calling them traditional companies or implying that all traditional companies work the same way. So before we go much further, we must ask whether this is actually a problem that uh, German automotive companies have, or is it a problem that Mike is having on their behalf? Uh, by which I mean. Is this a problem that uh, affects them and that they are worried about and want to fix, or is it a problem that affects them and they are not aware of and that Mike is trying to surface it? Or is it a problem that Mike has with the way that these companies are run, that the companies themselves and their managers don't actually materially suffer from? So if the Mercedes-Benzes and Volkswagens of the world do not perceive software development as the difficulty they have, and that they may well be more worked up about emissions laws, uh, adopting electric drives, semiconductor shortages. There may be a bunch of other problems uh, that they do perceive as material, uh, either before this issue of software engineering, or uh, they don't perceive the issue of software engineering as material at all, and indeed it may well not be. Um, then, the really what is being said in this article what Mike Klimek is saying is you could make this situation more intellectually satisfying for me and that may not uh, be a particularly compelling argument uh, for changing the minds of these directors of these automotive companies Uh, a German car company increases shareholder value through the production of cars it doesn't exist to make developers feel better about themselves so what are the characteristics of so-called traditional companies that Mike Klimek dislikes, or at least that I infer that he dislikes, due to them being listed in an article about how these organisations get software engineering wrong. Well, these characteristics are um, organisational. They're not necessarily about uh, practices, about how engineering is done. They're about where engineering sits in the organisation, which basically means that they're about uh, the status or prestige of uh, the developers. So we see that there are many hierarchical levels of management, that there are decisions being made uh, top down, that there's a lack of flexibility, um, heavyweight processes, company politics that potentially get in the way of doing a good job, um, or Uh, He also describes them as being subject to Conway's law. Now, I actually think that all organisations are subject to Conway's law and that where you 
learn from that and where you uh, do well in engineering is when you accept the corollary that if your software is going to reflect your organization structure, then your organization structure needs to reflect your desired software architecture. And this is where he uh, invokes the second of the articles I'm talking about, which is the Gurgli Arash's What Silicon Valley Get About Software Engineers. And again, the uh, scare quotes very much around the word get there. They come down to greater autonomy and higher status, uh, i.e. more privilege uh, for software engineers. Software engineers uh, should have more respect and they should be allowed to uh, make their own decisions and uh, not like be involved in the management structure or the politics of the organization. Don't put process or management in the way of your engineers. Uh, pay us more and we'll do better work faster. So let's um, firstly unpick this idea that, soft, uh, that Silicon Valley organizations get something about software engineers uh, that these so-called traditional companies do not. Um, actually, I think Silicon Valley is a bit less untraditional than either author is representing, um, particularly like the larger, more established companies. You know, so if you were to uh, look at where the money is in Silicon Valley, like trillions of dollars of it are in organizations like Google and uh, Apple, and then we might include uh, you know, Facebook and Twitter and going further up the West Coast of the US slightly, um, Microsoft as well. Uh, these are uh, hierarchically managed organizations. Now, my group at Facebook, I worked there in 2014, um, had six levels of management between the engineers in my group and Mark Zuckerberg. Now, Mark Zuckerberg was very open in terms of uh, being available to answer questions in terms of uh, presenting his vision and his thoughts on how the company should be directed, but not necessarily that open in terms of uh, you know being open to having that direction changed. If you wanted to um, <clears throat> change like the way that your own team did something, then Yes, theoretically, you had the autonomy to choose how your team did that work, but you would be measured against goals that were agreed by the management at one, two, three levels up above you. And you would have to uh, go through the management process of convincing those people and the other engineers that you're collaborating with that it was a desirable change. Um, so management did control a lot of the decisions, even if it was mostly through. Um, sort of soft uh, skills, like so, uh, soft power, you know, through influence rather than through dictat. Teams were allowed to come up with their own goals, which made it look like an autonomous um, organization, except that you were on the do this thing uh, team goal. You were on the mobile testing team. Your goal had better be about improving mobile testing and specifically about improving whatever the uh, company level goals with respect to the mobile application were through the application of testing. Um, you weren't able to just uh, you know, go off and write your own programming language because you thought it would make mobile testing better. Um, so the 
the managers would explain what it was that they expected to see these organizations come up with for their goals. And yes, the engineers got to decide how they implemented those. <clears throat> but that's a limited uh, type of autonomy because it has to fit in with the um, political and cultural expectations of the rest of the organization. Facebook had a very rigid culture that would almost be seen as a sort of external artifact that people would question whether particular activities reflected our culture or were damaging our culture. Uh, so you had this sort of um, internalized sense of conservatism through cultural preservation that meant that you didn't have to have diktats because the engineers had learned this uh, sort of preservative approach or conservative approach to a like self-directing organization. So on the one hand, there really is a bit more autonomy in Silicon Valley engineering, but it's not quite as much the sunlit uplands as this distinction between um, the traditional companies and the um, uh, you know and the Silicon Valley companies would have you believe. In the traditional companies, you're still having to uh, make decisions that are appropriate for your uh, collaborators. It just happens that your collaborators are people who are making cars who need to like burn the firmware on a particular day. So it's not really the libertarian utopia that is presented uh, in these articles. Also, neither of these um, authors talks about how engineers are going to earn this autonomy or this privilege. What is it that we're going to do that makes uh, us deserve like being left alone? What is it that we're going to do that demonstrates that people don't need to worry about how we do our work? Um, bureaucracy and process are essentially the sort of primary artifacts of the enterprise, you know, of the um, of the private company, uh, because they are the collective knowledge of a management-led organization, encapsulated in such a way that the um, the rest of the organization can make use of this knowledge without having to have the managers physically present. What happens in a growing organization is that people realize what works and what doesn't work, and then they encode that as the processes, as the procedures, uh, as you know, the checklists, whatever it is. They encode it as the way in which the organization behaves so that the organization can make use of this knowledge about what works and what doesn't work as it grows up, as it scales beyond the um, number of people that the people who learns this thing can manage, as it scales beyond being like physically located with these people so that you can ask some questions as it scales beyond a single time zone so that the people might want to be asleep at the time that you're doing your work you can use their knowledge which is encapsulated in the bureaucracy of the organization so if the collective knowledge of a firm or of a whole category of firms as is being argued here uh, is that you can't trust software engineers to own their own decisions and that you can't give them the freedom to do work the way they want. Any proposal to make software engineers more autonomous needs to support the implication that they can be trusted. They, what you're basically saying is, let me make my own decision because I will make a better decision 
now you have to demonstrate that the decisions you make are better than the ones that are being made for you within this system. Now, traditional research into the development of professions identifies two properties that support this idea of trust and of trustworthiness. Um, they are a distinct body of knowledge encapsulated in the profession and a normative value of service to others or to society. So that is, on the one hand, the idea that software engineers have some skill or some knowledge that nobody else has, which on the one hand makes us want to bureaucratize them because we want to make sure that they are working uh, in the interests of our organization, despite the fact they have this sort of arcane skill. Uh, and on the other hand, means that we have to trust them to apply that knowledge because nobody else can do it. Um, and that we can get results by relying on the work of software engineers that we would not get uh, if we didn't use software engineers. And this phrase, normative value of service, I will unpick in some more detail later. But fundamentally, what it is saying is that because we want this autonomy in how we do the work, because we have this knowledge of what our work is, that means that we're, so we say, we are the best place people to decide how that work gets done and what the work is and what its outcomes are. And because we want to be respected and valued and well-paid and all these things, we will demonstrate that we have a system in place, uh, whether it's like a code of practice that we sign up for, uh, whether it is like exclusive membership of some organization, uh, whatever the mechanism is, we have some way of demonstrating that everyone who is a software engineer works in the interests of society and that they work in the interests of their client. But if their client's interests are disaligned from the interests of society, they will put society first. In neither case is the software engineer putting their own interests first. And that is the important fact that by saying I am a software engineer, I am saying whenever I write software, it is in the best interest of society. So let's go back into both of those and let's just unpick that normative value of service to others a bit more. It means that we're using our distinct knowledge and skill in the best interest of our society and our clients, ideally putting society before our clients. We're not acting in our own interests and we're not acting in the interests of a malicious paymaster. So if I worked for some company that previously had the, um, the mission statement, do no evil, and then decided it did want to do evil, I would blow the whistle on the evil that is being done. I would uh, refuse to do evil for that company. I would like, leave that company and work somewhere else. And indeed, I may not work for an employer at all. I may only be engageable as a consultant or as an agent because uh, that is the way that I disconnect the selfish interests of my um, paymasters from the interests of society which I serve through doing software engineering. The body of knowledge idea means that people in the profession know what the good and bad practices are. That if you find a software engineer, they will do software engineer 
they will do software engineering work in the best way that they know and that the best way that they know is consistent with what the rest of the industry considers to be the best way that they collectively know they keep up to date with that information about what the good and bad practices are and they know how and when to apply these practices to a given situation and which practices not to apply they don't necessarily know all of the practices you know in the same way that a thoracic surgeon wouldn't necessarily need to know how to fix a knee but they do know the practices relevant to the uh, portions of the work that they do and they don't claim to do any of the work that's outside the scope of the practices they do know and understand and there's an expectation that this de development and selection of practices is based on some kind of underlying theoretical knowledge now software engineering has been called an engineering discipline in order to imply that the underlying knowledge should be scientific in uh, basis um, the the uh, practices in uh, medicine are based on a combination of uh, like science of medical science and of like social expectation you know what are people uh, like happy to undergo there's the famous story of nmr nuclear magnetic resonance being re renamed to mri magnetic resonance imaging because it is a fundamentally very safe practice but people are unwilling to entertain anything that has the word nuclear in it there's uh you know the idea that um that the safety features of a uh, railroad system are paid for according to what the society is willing to spend on saving any life which is uh, of course like ultimately chosen by um, the managers of the railway system which in the case of the uk would be um, the department of transport as the ultimate paymasters of the whole network um, but the network rail has like a number um, that says right, if we uh, can save one life we would spend this much money on it and um, we choose whether or not a particular safety uh, like intervention is appropriate based on the cost versus number of lives saved calculations so we've got this kind of idea of conflicting service to society on the one hand we want to make the thing as safe as possible and save many lives on the other hand we want to like not um create a uh, sort of very very expensive service and just spend loads and loads of uh, taxpayers money and therefore there's like balance between these two things we don't choose practices of railroad engineering based on purely scientific grounds <clears throat> we don't uh, pick them purely on what we think like people might want and we certainly don't pick them based on what would be uh, profitable we pick them balancing these conditions in a way that that reflect the interests of society so back to software engineering our authors seek the benefits of professionalism they seek higher pay and prestige and greater autonomy in their work. Each of the specific requests or demands they make fits into one of these two categories. 
less management oversight, more freedom to choose tasks, greater access to company information, better tools and processes. Neither of these people expresses what they would do to ensure that these perks pay off, how they would ensure that their better paid engineers know more about doing software engineering well, or how they would ensure that their empowered engineers make decisions with anything other than self-serving interest. This is where calls for licensure of software engineers use a heavy sledgehammer to crack the nut. One of the features of software engineering is its inclusivity. Whether you played around with your home computer as a child, or you did a computer science degree with no engineering content, or you retrained using some coding boot camp from a different profession, you are more than qualified to join a software team. Of course, this means that the answer to how do we ensure all of these engineers have a good up-to-date understanding of the body of knowledge is we don't because we let anybody uh, do software engineering. And so any, any approach that says we want uh, greater autonomy, we want more freedom in how we do the work, that doesn't change, we let anybody do this work and don't vet their skills has a problem it has a dichotomy at its heart that it wants more power for unqualified people to make good decisions when it has been demonstrated and these companies have rules uh, in place because it has been demonstrated that they will not make good decisions now licensure is based on the idea of we don't let anybody do any software engineering unless they've proved to you know, maybe a council of elders or of peers or to um, like to the members of some society that they understand the field. Uh, and that is kind of the complete opposite of the free-for-all that we have at the moment. So right now we say uh, you, know, you, you, you apply for a job, you get um, vetted for that job by the employer who decides basically whether or not they are going to make money by paying for you to write software. And then they let you do the work, and you know, that is the criteria for doing the work. Licensure opposes this and basically says, right, nobody is allowed to do software engineering unless, like, collectively software engineers decide that they are competent as software engineers. Now, my question, which is the open question on which I end this episode, is... Are there other options, not necessarily even middle grounds, but orthogonal uh, directions in which to take this? Is there a way to uh, justify increased value and autonomy and privilege for software engineers without like, just kind of rebooting the whole system and saying, OK, only people who are at least as clever as this stick are allowed to uh, do software engineering? You must, you know, you must reach over this bar in order to be allowed to engage with the field at all. Uh, I would absolutely uh, love to hear uh, what your opinions on this uh, topic are, what, um, what you think would work as a way to uh, improve the perceived uh, standard and reputation of software engineers. And you can email me at grahamlee at acm.org. You can find me on Twitter. I was Lee G, I-W-A-S-L-E-E-G. You can uh, subscribe to my fortnightly newsletter at sickbuzz.curated.co. That is S I C P 
ers.curated.co. Thank you very much for listening, and I will talk to you again soon. Bye.